Would you pray with me? Lord, may the words of my mouth, may the thoughts and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, by a quick show of hands, how many of you have ever attended a confirmation service before? How many of you ever attended a confirmation service, either here at Messiah or, or somewhere else? Okay, a bunch of you. I want you to keep those confirmation services in your mind, uh, because we're going to come back to them in just a minute. Uh, but before we do, I want to tell you a, a little bit of uh, the background and the story about how confirmation got started. And I realize, I realize that this is a really riveting topic when you're a pastor, uh, but I promise uh, that this story connects the confirmation services that you've attended to today's reading from 1 Peter. So I want to tell you that story. I want to come back to the confirmation services, and I want to explore uh, the first verse uh, in today's second reading from 1 Peter, and it's rather significant message for us today. And so first, uh, the story, the story about how confirmation got started, and that story begins uh, with something that most of you, uh, or at least some of you, may already know. Uh, that the, uh, the rite or the ritual of confirmation is very old. Uh, it dates back to the early church, back when most people uh, become Christians, not because they are baptized into the Christian faith as babies or very young children, uh, but rather because they are converts to the Christian faith when they are adults. And, uh, and the other thing that you may know is, uh, is that, uh, that confirmation, uh, it, uh, it, it, uh, most people in the early church who are converts, they're not just Jews. Uh, many of them are Gentiles, other people from a variety of backgrounds across the ancient Roman world. And yet, whether they're Jewish or not, at some point, somewhere, uh, these early converts, they hear the good news about Jesus. They hear the good news about Jesus, just like you and I have heard the good news about Jesus. And so they begin to believe the Holy Spirit's at work, and, and then, then they ask to be baptized. They ask to be brought into God's family. And I, I know that this is a, a really riveting topic. Uh, but there is an important side note uh, about baptism in this story, and more specifically about when you should get baptized. You see, uh, the short answer to that question is that when you are uh, a brand new Christian, or when you're an adult, God wants you in his family. He wants you, uh, he wants you in his family, and the way that he brings you into his family is through baptism. It's sort of like adoption. So when you're a, when you're a brand new baby, when you're under the care of a parent or a guardian or someone else, you get baptized. You get baptized because God wants you in his family, he wants you adopted, and he doesn't want you to be like some foster child bouncing from home to home to home until you're finally old enough to know what a, a home really is, and at the end, the end, you really want to have one. He just wants you in his family, and so we baptize. We baptize babies trusting that at some point, somewhere, uh, you are going to learn what your adoption really means. 
and who God really is and, and what it looks like to be a part of his family. But when you're not a brand new baby, when you're an adult, when you're a teenager, when you're a grade schooler, uh, the story sounds a little bit different. You still get baptized, but before you get baptized, you get taught. And the reason why is that part of your baptism, part of your adoption, uh, when you're old enough to know about it, is to know who it is that's actually adopting you. And that's why when you're an adult or a teenager or a grade schooler, we teach and then we baptize. And that's this, uh, this little side note about baptism in the story about how confirmation got started. And I tell it because most of the converts to Christianity in the early church are not babies. Most of them are adults. Most, though not all. And you see, uh, there are all these baptisms going on, but before all these baptisms are going on, there's a whole bunch of teaching, and most of that teaching is done by ordinary Christians because there aren't a lot of pastors, there aren't a lot of bishops, and, and yet this teaching, it's pretty intense. It often lasts a year or more, and it often culminates during the season of Lent when even more time is set aside for preparation and for fasting and for eventually a baptism that takes part as a part of the Easter celebration that year. And that's when the pastor or the bishop comes in. And those terms are really fluid in the early church. But the important detail is this. He hasn't been around uh, because he's been overseeing a, a bunch of other churches, and, and someone's probably been teaching in his stead, and so now he's showing up, now he's doing this baptism, but he's not just doing a baptism. He's also doing a confirmation. He's confirming that person's faith. I don't know if that sounds a little strange to you. It, it did to me the first time I heard it. But what he's doing is simply confirming uh, that the faith of the person being baptized, the faith that they've learned and the faith that they've been taught, he's confirming that that faith is indeed the same faith to which we all belong. The same faith in which we baptize. And, and it's from that act of confirming that we get the practice of confirmation. And we do it a little differently uh, than they did back then, but you can probably imagine the line that takes us from that story to the story of someone who was baptized. Maybe when they were a baby, maybe when they were just a little bit older, uh, but who has now come to learn what their adoption means, who God really is, and what it looks like to belong to his family. And so that's the history lesson. And uh, and as the pastor actually finds this uh, as a somewhat riveting topic, I, I thank you for going along the journey with me. Uh, but I, I, I tell it because it connects the confirmation services that you've attended to today's reading from 1 Peter. And the connection has to do with, uh, with one of the questions uh, that we ask those who are getting confirmed at a confirmation service. You may remember there are a lot of questions that those getting confirmed get asked. Well, well, this question, it's perhaps the most serious of the questions that gets asked. It goes like this. Do you intend to continue steadfast in the faith and to suffer all, even death, 
rather than falling away from it? I mean, it's a really serious question. Suffer all, even death, rather than fall away from it? How about you, but when I think back on what it was like to be 13 or 14 years old, I'm not sure that a question like that even registered for me. And yet here's the connection to 1 Peter. And it's the key to understanding today's reading, and it's the key to understanding any reading from 1 Peter. If a question like this was asked, it would have immediately registered for the first hearers of this letter. You see, we don't know a lot of details about the background and the historical context uh, behind 1 Peter. We don't know a lot of those details, but we do know a few things, and it helps us understand why. You see, 1 Peter, it's written by the Apostle Peter. He identifies himself in the very first verse. And, and it's written from the city of Rome. Peter calls it Babylon later in the letter. Uh, Babylon because Babylon was a pretty unfriendly and hostile place to the Jews during their exile. And Rome has been a pretty hostile and unfriendly place for Christians in the first century. And, and because we know that it's written in Rome, uh, we can arrive at a dating between sometime around 62 or 63 AD, about 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, and, and right around the time that Peter is going to die for his faith in that city. And so he's under arrest, he's under arrest, and he writes this letter to a group of churches living in Asia Minor, a place uh, that we know as modern-day Turkey. And there are two specific details that help us to understand the connection to that confirmation question. The first detail is this. Uh, this letter, it appears to be more than just a letter. It actually appears to be a sermon, and it appears to be a certain kind of sermon, a confirmation sermon. See, the first four chapters appear to be an address to those uh, who have just been baptized and who have just confirmed their faith, perhaps after Easter, perhaps a little bit after that. And the second detail is this. Uh, the dating of this sermon tells us uh, that this letter is written shortly after the assassination of James, the brother of Jesus. You see, there are a number of accounts of uh, how that story went. He was uh, the overseer of the believers in Jerusalem, the most gruesome of which involves him getting pushed off the top of the temple. And yet, uh, no matter how it happened, word would have traveled fast in the ancient world. And so you have this group of brand new Christians uh, who've just been baptized, who've just confirmed their faith, and you also have a group of Christians who know that you might just suffer all, even death, if you follow Jesus. And so it's with all that, uh, that context and those details in mind uh, that you might find yourself wondering, what does Peter say to these people? And if, uh, if you're wondering that question, you can pull out your bulletin, you can flip to page three. It's, uh, it's the second reading uh, that you just heard. And, and I just want to look at the very first verse as, uh, as I wrap up here. Uh, here's what Peter writes to them. He says, Peter, 
an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect exiles scattered throughout a long list of provinces. You know, it's, uh, it's just seven words in Greek, seven words with a long list of provinces that follow it. And the first four words, the first four words are Peter simply ad- uh, identifying that he's the guy writing this letter. And so it's, it's really just three words uh, in Greek, a bunch more in English, uh, that I want us to focus on. Uh, but these three words show us what it looks like to follow Jesus in a world that God so dearly loves. They show us what it looks like to follow Jesus in a world that God gave his son to redeem, and yet they show us what it looks like to follow Jesus in a world that often doesn't know who he is, or why people like you and me would actually follow him. You see, it's that last point, that last point about living in a world that doesn't often know Jesus or doesn't often understand why people might follow him. It's that last point that I think many of us are familiar with. I think many of us are familiar with what it's like to feel strange or different or other or to not fit in because we're Christians. And, you know, I'll be the first to point out uh, that the world that Peter writes to is a completely different world than the world that we live in. I mean, none of us are going to get arrested and, and put to death on our way home simply because we went to church today. But to not fit in, to be strangers in the world, that's the second uh, word that Peter uses, or to be exiles, I think that's something that we are familiar with. And to people who have this experience, uh, Peter has this message, you are not alone. You are not forgotten, and you belong to something far bigger and much greater than yourselves. Or to use the words that he uses two verses later, God, God has given you a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see, you belong to him. You belong to him even though you might feel like a stranger. You belong to him even though you might feel like an exile or someone who's been scattered from others who do. You belong to him because you are chosen. That's the first word that Peter uses, and that is the dominant theme that we're going to discover throughout this book. God chooses you. That's the good news, because you are loved. You are loved far more than you could ever imagine. I mean, the creator of the universe has given his only son so that you could have a relationship with him, so that he could call you son or daughter. He loves you, and he wants you. He chooses you to be his son or daughter. And our careful students of uh, the lectionary uh, will notice that today's readings uh, do not appear in the appointed readings uh, for the 14th Sunday uh, after Pentecost. Uh, But even more careful students of uh, the lectionary will notice uh, that today's readings do appear Easter uh, during the first year of that cycle of readings. And given that it's a, it's a, a sermon that was 
probably given on or around Easter. That makes a whole lot of sense. But this fall, we've, uh, we've also chosen to hear these words as we, uh, some of us, return to school and as uh, many more of us return uh, to the patterns of everyday life that we often step away from during the summer. And I'm convinced uh, that hearing these words during a season of re-engagement, especially a re-engagement in our church family as Sunday school starts and Bible studies get started, as next week uh, we head out and we pray uh, for the people who are are near this place where we worship, I'm convinced that hearing these words during a season of re-engagement is really valuable. Because it's here in this community of faith that God reminds us who we really are. That, that we are loved. That we are not forgotten. That we are not alone. And that we belong to something far bigger and much greater than ourselves. Because God chooses you. And he sets you aside for the sake of a world that he so dearly loves. And so I pray God's blessings on you and that these words and this community of faith might build you up as together we learn the greater story to which he chooses us to belong. Amen. And I may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus.